My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a 31-year veteran of the U.S. Army. He started his career at West Point and ended it as the Medical Squadron Commander of the Special Missions Unit. He has a bachelor's in psychology, a master's in healthcare improvement, and a medical doctorate. He's been the U.S. Olympic swimming team physician for the 2016 and 2020 Olympics, and now he's the co-founder of the Stellet Institute, a world expert clinic that specializes in treating trauma survivors with the ultrasound-guided Stellet ganglion block. Tonight, I'm honored to welcome Dr. James Lynch into the studio. Welcome, sir. Great. Thanks for having me, DJ. I really appreciate it. So I'm I'm so interested in talking to you because you're a doctor, but you're you're not really a doctor. You're kind of like a superhero doctor. Uh, and and as you sent me all the stuff to talk about, and your background and your qualifications, it just was like never ending. I just kept going like, golly, like when did this guy sleep ever after he joined the army? As I said, you started out at West Point. You got a degree in psychology, which. I'm figuring kind of helped you push along the way to this, what you're doing right now. The psychology kind of has a background in the post-traumatic stress and things like that. Did you come from a medical family? Did you come from a military family? Like what set you down this path? No, I actually came from neither a medical nor a military family. Um, I'm the first one in the family to, to join the military. Um, and you know, I, I don't even have a good explanation for that. I was one of those kids that was kind of, uh, I don't know, interested in the military from, you know, elementary school on, and then, uh, had an opportunity to, to join the military. I thought, you know, going to West Point might be a nice way to start that off. Um, no medical, uh, folks in the family at all. And, and really my interest in medicine came kind of late. I was, uh, um, interested in psychology in school because I thought it was kind of interesting. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with it and then figured I was going to be an army officer no matter what. And then funny how, how life works. And then, you know, years later, it comes back around. I find that I really started having quite an interest in, uh, in mental health. And I think, um, you know, this day and age and from the people that I have served with over the years, um, I actually think that's a, a pretty cool thing to, to turn out that way. Well, and I think you would agree from when you started 1989, we're talking about, um, you know, first Gulf War era, things like that. Uh, now, in the Vietnam era, we thought about post-traumatic stress, but I think it was labeled a little differently. I think those guys got a really bad rap coming back from Vietnam. They didn't look at it as post-traumatic stress. They, they, they gave it all kinds of, you know, things against society. And then even I would say in the first Gulf War, I don't think it was really looked at by the military in general. Then we get to the GWAT era uh, and we spend from 2001 up until very recently and now maybe going into into Russia, Ukraine and things like that. I think it's really started to be uh, focused on at not only the VA, but outside in the civilian world, too. So can we talk about like what the change would be, why it's looked at so differently now than it was then? 
Oh boy, that, that that's a that's a great question. So, um, so post traumatic stress disorder, and then it's probably important to say this up front. So some people will use the term um, post traumatic stress injury, right? So people people listening to this may be um, familiar that there's been some you know uh, discussion about using different terminology for that. In terms of the the technical, the correct term or the right terminology, until someone changes the psychiatry textbooks. Um, which may happen someday, but as it stands right now, you know, we do call it post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and I, and for people who um, take offense to that, um, I would, I would, I understand. And in fact, I, I prefer the term post-traumatic stress injury because it implies that injury is something that actually can be, um, can be treated and can be overcome. But I, I actually don't get too hung up about that overall. And I'm not a, um, you know, a, a diehard one way or the other. But to me, it's it, the, the name matters um, a little bit. But the, the point is, it's post-traumatic stress disorder has been around for for years, hundreds, hundreds and thousands of years. And it's, it was called by uh, many other names, you know, shell shock back in World War One um, was really kind of the the. Um, um, one of the prominent times where the the responses to combat were described um, in terms of in psychiatry um, journals, but even predates that. So, you know, in more recent times in, in U.S. modern warfare, um, I think you're right. I think that there um, in Vietnam times, Vietnam uh, and um First Gulf War times, I, I think it just really didn't get the the attention. Not that it wasn't there, but I, I also think if you look at the past twenty years of of um, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, Syria and others, uh, I think just the sheer volume of deployments and the numbers of people affected and the back to back to back deployments have really um, um, raised the issue to the forefront a lot more. Not to mention that I think our culture has just become a little bit more um, in tune with or okay with discussing mental health in general. And that, that's across the board. I think people would agree that, you know, our, the generation before us or our parents, you know, that was taboo stuff. Nobody would talk about depression or anxiety or things like that. And nowadays, um, you know, the generations younger than us, you know, that's commonplace stuff. So I think the tide has really turned across our culture, um, not just in the U.S., but worldwide in terms of talking about mental health and mental wellness issues. So in combination with 20 years of combat, plus a kind of a more open dialogue with mental health, I think it's been kind of a um, perfect storm of addressing things that have been really haunting and weighing down um, literally millions and millions of probably to the tune of 10 million Americans with post-traumatic stress. When you say that the era is different, I want to kind of go over your military career because I want people to understand that you weren't just a, you know, a doctor, you weren't just an officer in the military. Um, you, you did some stuff that, that wasn't necessarily, you know, straight down the road. You kind of took some side paths and things like that, but your first unit that you were assigned to, from what I'm understanding is at Fort Bragg with the 82nd, you were there with them for five years. So it wasn't like you went to a slouch unit when you go, you know what I mean? Uh, big no. army, they, they even considered in big army, they're considered, you know, the elite of big army. Uh, you look at, at major units like the 25th, 101st, 82nd, there's a lot of these units that are, that are thought of very highly, 
But as you go there, you go to airborne, air assault, jump master, ranger school. You you did flight surgeon school, naval dive, uh, navy diving medical officer, expert field medical badge. Like you did the things that you were needed to do, but you also went above and beyond. The reason I say all that is to say this. Do you think that helped you in your medical career? Not only in today's society where you're helping treat the post-traumatic stress, do you look at soldiers and injuries from the battlefield and just back in garrison differently than you think another doctor would? Yeah, I think um, that's a that's a good one because it's it's kind of a um, yeah it's it's a it's a for sure yes because you, you just can't help it. I think um, you know there are there are many folks in medicine. So if we talk just specifically about military medicine, there there are a lot of physicians um, or other healthcare professionals who actually did something else before they went into medicine. Um, and, and it's a lot like the, the folks that were um, prior enlisted before coming off, before becoming an officer may have a very similar understanding that you just, you just kind of get it. And there's a certain amount of um, credibility that I think you get if you've actually, um, you know, done things like jumped out of planes a um, hundred times or, you know, gone through ranger school or things like that, um, or, or deployments for that matter. So I, I do think, I, and I appreciate you saying it because it's, you know, it's awkward to um, say that and try to remain humble at the same time. But, but I am kind of a, um, aware of that now when I say, you know, hey, here's this guy who's a retired colonel who served in the, in the, in army medicine. And I think for a lot of people that conjures up like some guy in a white lab coat that's been hanging out in Walter Reed or somewhere like that for his whole career. Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? Like I'm not in the least bit um, um, bashing my my colleagues who, who have served the military that way. And I, and I don't mean that. What I do mean is that you have a little different insight into what um, life is like on the ground or perhaps in tactical units. Um, and where I think that becomes really key is in terms of the psyche. So if you're in a unit, and I have spent very little of my time in a hospital or clinic for that matter, I've spent almost my entire career in um, brigade size elements or below, which is a little weird for an 06 um, to have been able to spend that much time um, in the military, but I just, I just got lucky, frankly. Um, and in doing that, I got a chance to basically serve around troops. And so the, there's all the intangibles that come with, you know, the, the chow hall discussions and the just the camaraderie of everyday life that you get to see just being part of a team um, and a small unit team. So even like as a major in a SF battalion and 5th Special Forces group where I was the battalion surgeon, um, just on two deployments, you just think about all the stuff that you learn culturally, culturally about the culture um, is uh, <laughs> is tough to put into words, really. So, so yeah, I do literally, think, yeah, it's literally very hard to put into words. <laughs> um, but I do think it's that. I think it's actually like the intangibles. It's not so much like, for instance, the time you spend as a flight surgeon, which is kind of a weird thing, right? You're just some doc sitting in the back of a helicopter. You got nods on and you're flying around, but what the heck's the purpose of that, right? Um, I think the purpose of that somewhat is to understand not just the stressors on the body of, of air crew, which is a huge deal, and you really have to experience it to understand and appreciate it, but it's also to be around the culture and kind of understand, um, you know, what, what it takes to be a, a, an air crew member and what, what that does to, you know, the strains that that puts on 
the body and mind and psyche and everything else. So, so I think there's more to it than just, you know, walking alongside um, my fellow soldiers for, for 31 years. I think it's actually being um, part of the team. But what I would say to that is, you know, when you opened it up, you said not to have any disrespect to, you know, the doctors that were at the hospitals. But I think that's a very strong critique of the military. And I think you would agree with that, that you have these guys that come be and by no means am I saying that's why they're doing it. But I think a strong critique of of the outside world that doesn't see in that arena and even people that are inside there that's a very strong critique that these guys are just becoming a doctor to be a doctor and kind of go through their career and be a doctor and not do anything. And I think that maybe that led us to a little bit of the problems that we're in with necessarily the VA or aftercare treatment and things like that. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's the way I would look at it. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Cause it's a really, I think that could be a contentious topic that a lot of people would feel strongly about and, and I'm biased, of course, right? I'm part of the system. Um, but before I was a physician, I actually taught uh, the officer basic course for three years when I was a captain down at, at in San Antonio at Fort Sam Houston. Um, and I was leaning towards medicine at that time, meaning I um, wanted to be an army physician. And I felt very strongly about teaching whatever three years worth of, you know, a generation of future army leaders in medicine, that there's a difference between being an army being an army physician and being a physician in the army. Um, and this was pre nine 11. So, um, at that time, you know, it was very easy for someone to be a, a, a physician in the army and kind of do their time and, and, and come and go and have their med school paid for residency paid for or whatever. Um, I, I think it changed, you know, cause I've, I've been in to watch things, the tide change over the years. And I feel like, while this may not be true across all the branches, um, I think certainly the, the folks that deployed with the Army and the Marine Corps, um, meaning the Navy physicians who support, support the Marine Corps uh, over the past 20 years, I, I think got a real, a real taste of, of what we signed up to be in terms of military physicians. Um, that's not to say, you know, I think your comments are, are at, you know, that the system's not perfect and that you, you may have some people that... Um, um, entered military service, um, maybe without the um, prior knowledge or conviction that maybe other people who raise their hands to to enlist or to get a commission have. But I, I can't even, uh, I, I could go on all day with individual um, examples of people who kind of, you know, backed into the military as a way to pay for medical school, served 40 years and became general officers. And, you know, and bleed green. Like, so it's just, you know, it's, I think it's worth at least saying that there's, there's quite a few people out there who, um, despite what setting they work and consider themselves, um, you know, diehard soldiers. So for whatever that's worth. And, and I would agree with that. I, I think that, uh, I think that there has been a change and you can see it in the, in the focus has changed into things that we're going to talk about later on tonight, like the post-traumatic stress and stuff, things have changed. Now with you being all the way back in the first Gulf war, what have you seen change that you really, uh, really appreciated has changed, uh, medical wise for the military? Yeah, boy, talk about night and day, right? I think about in, in um, you know, 1989, uh, brand, 
brand new second lieutenant showing up to the 82nd. I'm in second 325 White Falcons, brand new guy. Um, it was a whole uh, lifetime ago. And, you know, the extent of Army medicine back then was, you know, so antiquated that, you know, most people will look at things like um, really the, the, um, the Battle of Mogadishu as being kind of a turning point. So it's, it's probably fair to just jump in right there and just say, you know, that with the lessons learned in Mogadishu in terms of trauma care, it just exploded in terms of better ways to take care of, of trauma on the battlefield. And then if you think about the, the, um, the, the 20 years of, of Afghanistan and Iraq deployments and the advances that were made in trauma care on the battlefield since, um, 2001. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, and I'm not patting myself personally on the back at all, because I have very little to do with that, but there are some people out there in our community, particularly in the soft community who um, really were, were pioneers and just could be credited with saving thousands of lives based on changes in, in training, changes on changes in devices. I mean, without, and these are things that many people are now so accustomed to that it's, it's almost boring to talk about tourniquet use or something like that has become such a part of our culture. Uh, but that was unheard of in, in the first Gulf War. That was, that would be a foreign concept or, you know, um, you know, combat gauze or, or any other hemostatic dressing or any, any of these things were just like science fiction. Like nobody would even understand that. So I'm actually, you know, quite proud of, of watching what military medicine has, has accomplished in terms of um, real concrete advances. And, and frankly, the, the funny thing is when you're in the military, you don't realize this, but when you get out or you interact with outsiders, you see the tremendous amount of respect that the civilian medical community has for the U.S. military uh, medical community in terms of advances that have then bled over into um, civilian care as well. I think it's a great point you bring up with that trauma care, though. Two guys that have been on this show, uh, Ryan Hendrickson and um, and uh, Lavery, uh, Nick Lavery. Uh, Nick had lost his leg, uh, had put a prosthetic, had a prosthetic placed on, and went back actually to Special Forces as a warrant officer in Special Forces. Same way with Ryan, he didn't lose his leg, but he had to go through extensive trauma surgeries and, and all kinds of things that were placed on his leg. But he said, I'm going to go back and be in special forces. And he went back in special forces, which is unheard of 10, 15. Well, I would say 15 to 20 years ago. That's unheard of, um, especially getting back to that elite level. Uh, And you have things like uh, I think it's called the Thor team and things like that. The rehabilitation people. So why do you think, though, that it took so long? Was it because we needed that constant deployment, that constant battle? What took so long to get to that war, as we know, has always been brutal. So why has it taken so long to step our game up to it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think uh, I think um, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think when you're faced with back to back to back deployments, um, something's got to give. And I think that there were, you know, early on. Um, there were some forward thinkers early on in, in certain pockets of, of the um, military community that I think really, really grasped um, 
that we weren't getting it all the way done with the the value placed on on humans. So I'm, I'm obviously I'm biased. I spent most of my career as a physician in the soft community. So in terms of the the soft principles, number one, humans are more important than hardware. Um, I think that that is and what I've um, strived to uphold and hope have others uphold is that that's not just a bumper sticker. It's not just a slogan. It's actually legit. And that the the money, the budget, the bandwidth you spend behind that slogan should actually actually add up. And it should be um, it should be it should be more than that. It's not just lip service. So I think early on, you know, as as the soft community developed um, this appreciation for the human weapon system and the, the human um, being more valuable than than hardware, then um, things fell in line behind that to try to um, you know sustain optimize uh, sustained health and performance. And I think um, like many other things in the military, not to um, um, not to not to oversell the importance of the SOCOM community, but but really SOCOM has led the way in so many other things in terms of um, developing. Um, new tactics, techniques, and procedures to include the human weapon system, that then that trickles outward and that there are, you know, particular pockets within the soft community that's just done a, a fantastic job with that. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the conventional military across the branches um, will then will then pick up on that. And then you see this great ripple effect. Um, I think it's actually interesting now, the perspective that I have, which is kind of fun now, is I have um, both of my daughters are in the military now. Um, so now I'm looking at like the whole, the next generation, and it's actually quite interesting. I should be careful. I don't want to get either of them mad at me, so I won't disclose too much. But I have uh, my oldest daughter is a, is a Blackhawk pilot, and I get to hear her, and she's a platoon leader, so I get to hear, you know, her experiences as a platoon leader. Now in today's day and age in the conventional army, uh, my other daughter is a Navy nursing student. She'll commission in a couple of years and join the ranks in the Navy as a nurse. So hers is a little, um, you know, one step removed, but it's very interesting to hear from the platoon leaders out there today of how um, different the the culture is in terms of trying to get after things like mental wellness. When that was unheard of, when we were platoon leaders, like that would just be bizarre. If you brought up anything about trying to address somebody's um, mental fitness or their, um, you know, their, their global health or something like that, somebody would probably punch you in the throat because it would just be a weird thing. But now that's quite, um, that's quite common. That's just normal everyday vocabulary for, um, for the leaders out there today, at least from my little snapshot of what I'm seeing through, through, uh, you know, the next generation. Well, with tours that you've done in, in Africa, Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, you were based out of Stuttgart, Germany. So you saw a lot of the stuff that was being transferred. That's kind of the first stop being transferred out of that area of operation. Do you think it was partly to in, in the moving the medicine forward was the kind of wars that we were fighting? I mean, these IEDs were going off everywhere and we were fighting a very unconventional war on a conventional level. Uh, do you think that was any, th that that had anything to do with moving it forward? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, actually, I think that's a really good point because you brought up Africa. I think that's a, um, yeah, particularly interesting thing that that's, you know, early on in the early days of, of Afghanistan and Iraq, um, 
whether it was IED related or, or anything else, there's, there's, you know, tremendous, um, um, obligation on the, the military medical infrastructure to, uh, you know, minimize loss, um, figure out better ways to take care of wounds and injuries. Um, and then, you know, that, that, um, took off and there was just incredible amount of research behind that, um, um, involvement with industry, people developing different devices, how to build a better mousetrap to take care of whatever, how to improve body armor, how to improve, you know, um, the V-shaped hulls of, of vehicles, all these things we got to see play out right in, right in front of our eyes um, over the years of deployments. Um, but I think something that was very interesting was that our focus on, um, in this case, TCCC or Tactical Combat Casualty Care um, was really built on this golden hour of having um, air superiority and helicopters nearby, which was which is awesome. Like, who doesn't want to have that um, as a as a um, as a backup? So we became um, and still are experts at the point of uh, point of injury, at the point of wounding, and um, have had the um, the liberty of having far forward surgical care for so many years that that became really something we were accustomed to those on the front end uh, or on the front lines. So because you brought up Africa, I thought that was a really interesting point. It wasn't until, um, you know, it, let's see, it would have been about 2017 ish, 20, no, 20, 13, 14, 15, early deployments into remote areas of Africa by some special forces teams where, where um, there was a discovery and a term coined then of PFC or prolonged field care. Um, and the interesting thing was, you know, for 10 years being trained um, based on the battlefield of the day, meaning the current day um, with helicopters within 30 minutes uh, time of flight, um, our medics became fantastic at point of care uh, treatments, stabilizing, evacuating, and survival rates are fantastic till you find yourself in Africa. And then all of a sudden um, game changes, right? So, so I think in this case, um, the, the changes on the battlefield, it's the obligation of the medical community to then figure it out, right? Like, okay, well, we're not gonna be able to cover the continent of Africa. Um, with Blackhawks, it's a um, impossible feat. We got to figure out something else, and I, and it's pretty cool because there was this was really born out of um, some very savvy um, 18 Deltas or Special Forces medics on the ground in Africa that started asking hard questions, and who they started asking them of was of their senior leaders, the physicians out there. Like, hey, doc, how are we supposed to do X, Y, and Z? Um, how long is this tourniquet okay to stay on for? And how do we manage these burns when we can't get an aircraft in for a whole day? Things like that. Um, so another, you know, really good medic-led um, advancement in medicine was prolonged field care, which looked at exactly that. How do we sustain a casualty that we just can't evacuate and get out for uh, extended periods of time? Um, and that's not just a U.S. thing. That's really branched out across NATO forces because you know, we sure as heck aren't the only game in town in Africa. In fact, French been there forever. So it, it, it um, has been a great uh, opportunity to watch us collaborate with our NATO partners on a lot of things like this to figure out 
how to how to work with teams to deliver um, to close the gaps to deliver prolonged field care in Africa. So you know, I rambled there a bit, but back to your original question about um, how has the how has the shape of the battlefield transformed what what medicine has done? Exactly that. You know, it's really forced. Um, military medicine to, to figure it out, <laughs> like figure it out quickly, because you don't have a lot of liberty to just um, take your time when you got, you know, people spread out all the way from Dakar, Senegal to Somalia and sprinkled everywhere in between. You don't have the liberty to just take your time. You better figure it out now. Well, and I think you bring up a couple good points there. One, that I don't think that people recognize those 18 deltas, exactly what they do. It's taken that level from you up there, your senior leaders, and really putting that, whether you call it pressure or whatever, down to those guys to really treat it until it gets to you. I mean, they've got to be on their game out there, especially in places, like you said, like Africa and places that they can't evac out of really quick. With that being said about them and with us talking about, you know, the, the landscape of the battlefield. Now, what do you think is the next advance for them? Because I, I hear some crazy stuff that they could do. I heard that transfusions can be done out in the field, all this kind of stuff. So where are we headed with these guys? Cause I mean, they are top notch. Like if they got out that, you know, I don't see them having trouble in medical school and stuff. These guys are at the forefront. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I, if I could, um, you know, I'm not, I don't even know the right way to say it, but I, I would love to just acknowledge or give a shout out to all the, all the medics, um, that I served with throughout my career, which are too, too numerous to count or name. Um, but boy, talk about an amazing and inspiring group of people that, um, that really were probably responsible for me sticking around the military to, you know, 31 years. And I don't know, trying to keep up with them, even at the age of age of 53, 54, and finally calling it in. Um, but I think, um, you know, to, to their credit, um, many, many of the medics that I served with over my career are brilliant and um, will not, take a half answer, always looking for a better way to do something, always looking for a way to sharpen their skills or ask hard questions. Um, and, and you better be on your game. And if you don't know, you better figure it out quick. So, uh, I, I think that's been great. As far as the next advance, I, I think it's a, it's a great question. I don't have a good answer other than to say this, um, what I have watched over the years is a real, um, um, a tendency to, to look for um, sophisticated ways to accomplish what can sometimes be done in, in simpler terms. And this is, this is a tricky one because there are, um, there are, there's always advances in medicine going on. But what's important to not lose sight of is some of the basics that really save lives. And I, and I think that sometimes gets lost in the sauce as people pursue um, the next hotness that's coming down the pike. And it might be something that somebody gets exposed to while working at a trauma center, which is fantastic. And um, my comments are not at all to discourage innovation or initiative or anything like that. But I think there's a bit of a risk that comes with pursuing the next great technical advance for saving lives on the battlefield at 
the risk of losing the basics in terms of really good basics in training and repetition and muscle memory and simple things like communication and controlling the chaos. Um, those are the things that really save lives. And um, so I don't know exactly where it'll go. It's been fun to kind of watch. Now I'm on the sidelines, right? I'm just some old retiree guy. I have. Well, I don't. I don't know necessarily that you're on the sidelines of it, but uh, th- let me ask you a question that you you have no law enforcement experience, but but I want to speak to you from a law enforcement point of view for a second because I would ask you, just like the battlefield has changed for the military since 2001. The landscape for policing and law enforcement has drastically changed, and I will even shut that down into a five-year phase. It has drastically changed. Ambushes are up. Uh, Police uh, being shot on search warrants, uh, riot control, all these different things that are happening. But I don't know that we've seen medical treatments go up that much in that area. So how do we bring that over into a law enforcement area? Because... One with post-traumatic stress, that was part of the thing that I told you about was talking to these guys about that, that, that it's okay to talk about these things, but also just the medical advances, bringing them over. Uh, do you have any idea how we would do that? Yeah, I think so. I have, I have a couple of thoughts and, and you're right. I have not served in the law enforcement um, community, although um, I love cops. <laughs> I love first responders and I actually, it, it's actually a really cool thing to be uh, a civilian now, and I'll be immersed in a community where I get, um, can actually take care of them. Whereas before, you know, all the time in the military, I was pretty much uh, took care, TRICARE beneficiaries, soldiers and families, which, you know, I still love, but it's pretty neat to do that. Um, what I would say is there have been some pretty cool advances that have transferred over. Um, and I think, um, you know, there's, there's a thing called the Hartford, Con- uh, Hartford Conference and Hartford Consensus that was really designed to take um, what was called the Stop the Bleed program, which was to take all the lessons learned from tourniquet use um, in the military and transfer that to the civilian community. So nowadays, um, if you walk through the airport or another public setting, you'll see the bleed kits on the wall next to the AEDs, the defibrillators. Um, that's a huge deal. Like the people that were behind that within the military, many of them from the soft community that really said, they felt an obligation like, OK, these are things, lessons that we've learned, um, you know, in Baghdad, in in Kandahar. We, we got to get these to the streets of wherever Chicago, Baltimore, you know, Podunk, USA. It doesn't matter. Um, and that's been really successful. That's cool. And there are plenty of first responders trained now on um, similar stop the bleed programs that were learned, you know, years ago in the military. So that that's a huge success, I think. To your other point, and the thing that I feel and the, the thing that's near and dear to my heart or the thing that I spend time on is really working on, on mental health. And I don't I um, I think the parallels are just spot on between the law enforcement community and the military community that I have served with over 30 years. Um, I think that the belief systems, the values, the hard work, the dedication, the selflessness um, that I see in cops and firefighters and EMS crews are, are run directly parallel to what I've been a part of for my 30 years. And it's actually what um, um, wants causes me to want to reach across and try to, to try to gather in the community because I think we have so much in common when it comes to 
um, issues with mental health, uh, which is like a taboo subject still to talk about. Although I've had many conversations and I treat many uh, cops and firefighters and EMS nowadays with the, the procedure that I do for trauma. Um, but I can tell that it can, it, it's still a bit of an uncomfortable topic um, where I felt like we kind of cracked that within the community where I served, at least within the soft community over the past few years, where I really feel like we made um, enormous advances to break down stigma. Um, not to say that it's perfect. And there's probably people listening to this that would you know, raise their eyebrows and say there's still a tremendous stigma in the military. Absolutely. I'm not denying that. But I think on, on an individual level and in small pockets, there have been some really impactful senior leaders, both officers and enlisted in the military who have come forward and shared their personal stories, whether it's with um, depression, anxiety, um, suicidality, substance abuse, or, or PTSD. And that's really my area of, of interest. So, you know, just to, just to focus on that for a second. Um, but I, I see that and I know that that same thing can happen in the first responder community as well. Um, I think that the, the barriers are very similar. And I, I think that um, what I see from, from the community, from the first responder community is that same selfless dedication to always putting the community first and myself, my family second, myself last, um, and this real unwillingness to, to take a knee or, or to let your teammates down. And, and that, like, I get it. Believe me, I get it. Like that's been my community and my, um, my team for years and years. So, um, what I don't know is how best to translate then how we've effectively, um, change some of the culture within the military to then have that translate to um, some of the, the law enforcement community. Um, I, I look at it, I'm kind of, you know, a little guy you know, around the DC area. And I, I feel like that's the best thing kind of attacked at a community level. Um, but I do, you know, I do reach out with national organizations um, in terms of trying to raise awareness that there, that there are things that we can do um, that are actually, uh, good for you and your team and your community by taking care of yourself. And it's just trying to figure out how to phrase that, that dialogue correctly um, to, to make it make sense. Going a little further on that with the law enforcement, I, I think you would agree that, that it's a different kind of uh, post-traumatic stress with them or mental issues with them. I, I think more than when you talk about, you know, special forces and being constantly in battle and seeing the things that they see for law enforcement. And, and I speak for, you know, myself or, uh, you know, only myself. But what I see is two things, different things that happen. One is these guys go out and they do their job every day, but the community hates them no matter what they do, good or bad, because the squeaky wheel gets the oil. The, the guys that support, they're not going to be that loud about it. So they're, they're going to be repeatedly, you know, just put down with what the community dislikes about them, what they're doing wrong. And they can't yeah. do anything right, w whether it be a traffic stop, a search warrant, riot control, whatever it may be. The second thing that I see is, and it, it, it was part of one of the reasons that I started this was, I see these guys that do 20 years, 25 years, 30 years as law enforcement. They get out, four months, they're dead. 
whether that be of a heart attack, whether that be of uh, mental health, whether that be of suicide, alcohol, being addicted to pills. And there just seems like no way out of it. It seems like just a circle that, that can't be broken. So I want to talk to you about that kind of stuff because it seems like a different kind of stress to, to work with them. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I, I think the way you present it like that, um, it, it is. And, and I think, so there's a couple of things there, I think, um, to recognize. And I, I, um, um, I don't know another way to say this other than it, it saddens and disgusts me to see the way our, our, um, first responders can be treated in, um, the past few years in, in some places. And, you know, I'll try to um, leave it at that because it, it's, um, disheartening as an American citizen to watch that play out over the past few years. Um, having said that, so I, I don't think that that's the similar thing that a lot of people in the military feel. Certainly post-Vietnam, there was this sense that the military, you know, people, you know, hid their military service, never talked about it. They were um, either embarrassed or ashamed or just didn't want to be um, subject to scrutiny from the people in the community. So that, that changed drastically, you know, even after the first Gulf war with yellow ribbons and parades and everything like that, and that's carried forward. Nine 11 only helped reinforce that. So I do think that the, the military, um, the U S military enjoys a very um, popular opinion. That's not across the board, but I, I think it would be fair to say um, that that's a big difference between um, communities, the way you pointed that out. Um, I, I would say how um, the stressors, it, there, there is something interesting about that, because I do think um, this question about whether or not soldiers, and I'll say that generic term for military people, develop PTSD from combat deployments, there's actually quite a bit of evidence to show um, that, that that might not be true. There's actually quite a few folks, which sounds kind of weird to say that, right? There's actually quite a few folks who have really some baseline trauma, even from childhood, that, that might, you know, set them up for something. But then what I see a lot is there may not be a specific traumatic event or a specific um, haunting nightmare or recurrent or intrusive thought that plagues them. But it might be this um, chronic um, long-term overstimulation of the fight or flight system. So if we're talking about that in terms of military service, particularly over 20 years of people who have had back-to-back-to-back deployments, um, I, I think it starts to run a lot more parallel with what you see in, in the law enforcement community in terms of everyday, day-to-day stressors. Um, I think if you could talk to a lot of folks in the military who would, whether they would you know, admit it to their family members or not, um, loved their deployment time, not across the board, but there are certainly people who thrived in that environment. And then it's the stressors of coming home and trying to figure out um, how your life fits in, in the community when you're, when you're not in Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or elsewhere. Um, can I, can I interrupt you there? Cause you said yeah, something please. that really, where you say people thrived in that environment, but they don't tell their families about it. But don't you agree? They don't tell their families about it because that seems almost weird to present to someone, not to yeah. people like you and I or, or to people that understand 
why they would say they were proud to thrive in that environment. But to the normal person, I think that there's still that stigma that if they said they thrived in an area that was just constantly in chaos, that they're looked at differently. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's why people sometimes guard that. And that's the kind of thing that they'll discuss among their tribe um, very comfortably. And, and um, you know, it's difficult to make, you know, sweeping statements like that Absolutely. with, you know, all the mix of people who have served in the military from, you know, single deployment to back to back over 20 years with different levels of training. So I don't, it's a hard thing for me to make generalizations. The, the, the point that I was hoping to um, reinforce though, is I, I think that the stressors, the impact on the psyche of law enforcement um, officers, of firefighters, of EMS and other people that are going to be called on a daily basis to put themselves in harm's way um, daily, routinely, like it or not, come home, take the equipment off and go to bed with your family. Um, I think those stressors um, have a, a long-term effect. Your fight or flight system is constantly switched on and then you have to shut it off at night, go to sleep in your bed, um, you know, hopefully, you know, adjust okay, but do that for many, many years. And you start to wonder, you know, it, it's not crazy then that your your autonomic nervous system, which is really my area of, of expertise, um, just stops working so well, it becomes a bit dysfunctional. Or what we say is can get stuck in an elevated position or stuck in the on position, some people say. Um, but you don't have to have been um, blown up by an IED or seen your buddy's, um, you know, a decapitated body next to you to have that. Simply being exposed to a threat on a daily basis um, can just, you know, gently nudge that sympathetic tone up and up and up. And then what, and what my experience, what you get then is, and, and there may be people listening to this call now who get this, you get, um, um, you lose control of your ability of your emotions where maybe you snap at your kid for doing something, lose your temper, you go zero to 60 for no reason. You stop and you go, well, that was dumb. I don't, I don't know why I did that. And then I think most good people feel guilty and, and shame about that because you, you feel terrible. You're like, something's that's messed up. Why did I lose my coat? Why did I snap, go off the handle at my wife or neighbor or whatever, or lose your mind at the slow driver in the left lane, which is a common thing. You can intellectualize that. You can say, well, I didn't, I shouldn't do that. That's, that's weird. That's not me. That's not how I used to be. Um, but you can't help it. And that's my point is I think that there's changes that actually happen in the body that you can't help and, and you shouldn't feel guilty or shame about it. You ought to just feel like, okay, I gotta go get some help for this. Just like you would if you broke your leg and your buddy said, Hey man, let's go for a run. Well, you wouldn't feel guilty if you couldn't run with a broken leg. You just say, Hey, I can't run. I got a broken <laughs> leg. Um, right. But people feel guilty because their, their, um, their uh, brains may not work the way they used to, um, but they don't feel the same amount of, of, comfort or, or ease to like raise your hand and go, all right, I'm gonna go talk to somebody that can actually get after this. So I'm not, um, you know, spiraling downward here, as you mentioned. And we'll get into that a little later once we get into the actual treatment, but that's what it does is help to set up to lower that uh, inhibition to talk to people from everything that I've read and understand about it. 
um, that's what helps kind of push it in that direction. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, I, um, yeah, I didn't mean to get the cart before the horse there, but I do think, um, in terms of, of what I see as the, my, my patients and friends who are in the, the law enforcement community, because I, I never have served in that area is I see from, you know, discussions and just learning, um, from folks that that is a, a common theme that we have with, with, um, a, a baseline stress every day um, that just plays a toll on your fight or flight system. And we're designed for that. that's a survival thing, right? That's built in. It's an innate reflex. Um, and for some reason, there are people that will not fiddle with one bit. And there are other people that will have significant issues from exposure. I'll say it that way, exposure to, to daily stressors. Um, there's a lot more to it that we'll probably figure out in about 25 years, including the genetic component and other things like that. But suffice it to say that you could be on, you know, a close team um, in the force and there'll be two guys that'll respond very differently from three guys that'll respond very differently. And, and then you start talking about, you know, comparing that's a disaster. You start wondering why Joe can deal just fine with that event while you're having a hard time and you're maybe wanting to, I don't know, hit the bottle a little bit or something like that. Um, people start to feel guilt and shame over that because I'm, I seem to be different or I'm like the weak link. Um, but I think it's important to realize there's people are different and people, people are injured differently. People are, people heal differently. Um, if we look about, look at stuff like that, like it's in my head and it's some kind of a sign of weakness, we're totally missing the boat. You know, we are, we are, biologic species and our brains are not like some magical thing. They're built up of nerves that actually can get damaged when they're stressed too much. So um, for whatever that's worth. Well, I think, uh, you know, the saying can't see the forest for the trees. I think that comes into play a lot there, especially because you're not looking at the big picture. You're looking at yourself and judging yourself. Now in saying all that, I want to ask you and put you on the spot. What was learned in your career about stress and handling it? And let's go all the way back to West Point, all the way up until going to the special missions unit. I mean, the elite of the elite. What did you learn and how did you adapt your handling of stress as you went through your career? Ooh, that's a good one. Didn't see that one coming. Uh, so I think um, it's kind of an interesting one because I think it, if anybody knows um, a little bit about the military academies or anyone who's been through basic training, whether that's in the military or in law enforcement, um, you know, I think that stress inoculation is kind of a, you, you understand that, you understand what, what that means and that people use, you know, slang terms like we got to break you down before we can build you up and things like that. So, so I think a lot of us, um, you know, there's nothing unique to, to my background started out and like that, you know, like I'm, I'm 17 year old kid, literally, you know, one week after I graduated high school, I'm standing there getting my head shaved and raising my hand and getting yelled at. And, um, but that's, that's not a unique situation. I, I think, I think there's something interesting that's worth bringing up because maybe others can relate to this. Um, I think that, um, the stressors of being, um, junior are very different than the stressors of being senior. And by that, I mean, um, what I've seen over my career specifically and the people that I've served with is there are many people who will thrive in 
um, extremely stressful environments when they're members of a team and maybe a lower ranking person that they're just built for that. They can, um, you know, you know, run into a burning building, you know, run up a flight of stairs, jump in here, whatever. There, there are people that are just built for that. And then as time goes on, it's not necessarily just the aging, right? It's not like hitting 38 or 40. And now all of a sudden you become weak. Um, it's the advancement, I think, creates an additional stressor. This is something that I think was really, really bore out true in my last unit. And it's something that I think that deserves, deserves mention. It actually deserves like deliberate planning. So as people move up the ranks in the police force, you know, you go from being, you know, just the, the low guy on the team to now you're, you're moving towards chief or in the military, you're becoming a sergeant major or you're a senior officer. The stressors become significantly different and the stressors aren't just responsibility for more stuff. Um, it actually changes. You might be really good at shooting, moving and communicating, but you might suck behind a desk planning a budget and, and, you know, people who aren't used to sucking at anything is a tremendous stressor. So um, I know that sounds like a really odd thing to say, and I, I, but I think it actually weighs a lot of people down is as you advance in your career, you're constantly getting pushed out of your comfort zone into areas of different responsibility. You're in charge of more people, greater responsibility, greater um, um, amount of money or budgets or things like that. Um, but that becomes uh, stressful in a whole different way where it was, you know, many people will say that, oh man, I wish I could go back to being a platoon leader again, or I wish I could go back to being a, you know, second in charge on a team was awesome, um, without all the responsibility of planning X, Y, and Z. And, and what I have seen in my career, although it sounds crazy is that that can be a, that can be the straw that broke the camel's back. That can be the thing that kind of grinds you down, um, towards the end of your career. So, I think for senior leaders, you would think maybe one who hasn't considered this much might think they hit a point where, I don't know, you've kind of done all the hard stuff. You got it easy now. Uh, and it might actually be the reverse. It might actually be um, that the stressors are tremendous. You know, and just to, um, um, you know, show myself a little bit too, which whatever, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to do that. Um, I, I found that to be true with myself. I think once I hit around the rank of lieutenant colonel was responsible for a whole bunch of stuff. Um, it started to wear me down. It started to eat on me. And, um, you know, I had to reach out for help and ask for some help for my own mental health, um, which is really weird when you're a physician, right? You're supposed to be the guy that's, that's that people come to. Um, you know, it's like, you know, being a chaplain, going to another chaplain or something. Um, but, it, but it was, a, you know, it was a humbling experience. And it's something that I would um, you know, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about it now. I guess I'm, you know, past that point. Um, but I, I think that even people that are, you know, you look around your community and there are some people that are, that are badasses that you just would not expect to have a chink in their armor. And I, th I think many of them, as they get a little older and wiser and maybe a little up there in responsibility, realize I am in self-preservation mode. And if I, I got to take care of myself here. And I need to take a really good hard look in the mirror to take care of myself, my own health, and and really the health for my family. For a lot of people, is just like that's that's got to be that's got to become um, the reason for a lot of people. So the second part to that, let's talk about how stress affects you mentally, 
physically, psychologically, how did you see that stress affected you throughout your career? Um, yeah, th so I think stress, this is true for a lot of people. This, um, so I think my, my story is probably not that different, but my, my stress um, would uh, pop off at my family. Um, I'd be pretty good about keeping on my game face for a good 12 hour day at work. Um, you know, not, not show, uh, um, you know, my downsides, not always. Cause I, I could be a little irritable at times at work as well. Um, but I think, you know, I think for many of us, myself included, I could keep things kind of bottled together pretty good, uh, until I got home. And, and, you know, I have three kids I have, they're all up and out of the house now, but at, you know, at the, at the height of stuff going on in my career, they were in, you know, elementary, middle school, high school with a million things going on. All three of them played three sports in high school. And, you know, my wife and I are always spread real thin just in terms of just trying to keep family stuff together. Um, and I think that would be a, a, you know, an area where I could, I would crumble or, or just not be able to keep it together and maybe lose my temper at a time that I, you know, I, I shouldn't, I wouldn't. Um, had it not been for the, the stressors that I had kept bottled up at work. Um, so I'm thankful that, you know, I'm still married at coming on 30 years here and, you know, none's, none's the worst for it, but, um, that's not true for everybody. I think for many people that pop off valve, um, at home, um, can ruin a lot of stuff and it's kind of, you know, at the expense, um, you know, you're, you're, you're saving yourself and your job and your profession all admirable things, but sometimes at the expense of what happens afterwards. And those stressors on the families can be tremendous. Um, we ask a lot of the families of people in public service, whether that's in your community or, or nationally in the military, and our families, you know, they, they may or may not have signed up for that, um, but they, they got it. And um, anyway, I'm, I'm thankful that my, my stressors, I think, um, you know, it did bubble up like that. And I think, you know, I happened to be um, a man of faith and I had, um, you know, uh, turned to, to my faith quite a bit. And what became quite frustrating to me was when that didn't get me over the goal line, that just, you know, okay, something else has got to, got a way in here. So I did ask for help and had some, um, some people in the behavioral health community were tremendously helpful for me and um, not to be left out, but, uh, friends, you know, my, my peers. And, um, you know, I think we do a really good job of taking care of each other sometimes in, in small groups, but sometimes it's easier to just, you know, prop somebody up instead of giving them the, the tough love, like, Hey, you need, you need some help, brother. Um, anyway, I think I rambled a bit there, but I think back to answer. No, I, I, I don't. And, and here's the thing that I would say to that. I've talked to a lot of these guys and, and I, you know, I, they tell me that I couldn't wait to get back over there. I couldn't wait to get back over there. And, and they, they said that it affected the families and yeah. that they knew that it was affecting their relationships with their spouse or with their children or things like that, but they couldn't wait to get back over there. And you kind of said an interesting thing there too, where, for 12 hours a day, you could keep it together at work. And then when you come home to the people that should be the ones that you put down all those guards and relax with, those seem to be the ones that got the bad end of the stick on that one. Um, and so I would ask you, like I asked them, if you see that, 
where do you where do you correct it in your brain? Where do you okay it? How do you how do you uh, see it happening? I'm I'm having a real hard time asking the question or figuring yeah. out how to say it. How yeah. do you see that the problem's there? but continue to revisit that situation over and over. Yeah. And, and are there regrets at the end of it? Yeah. Well, that's a, boy, that's a million dollar question. Huh? If we could figure that out. I, I think part of it is, um, I, I don't know how many um, guys and gals realize how common that is. I think there's some power in, in realizing that you're not alone with these things. You know, again, this is, this isn't the stuff that, that people talk about or certainly didn't used to talk about this type of thing. That's the, you know, who, who would rather, who wants to talk about that versus, you know, the game last night or something. So, um, but I, I think, you know, like I'm on the receiving end, a lot of these conversations now. So for, for years and years of hundreds of people, have I heard that same story to the point? Um, okay. Well, everyone's got it, you know, like you got to do something about it. And I think, Back to the comment I made earlier, I think a very powerful thing has been um, senior leaders that I've worked with over the years, whether they're general officers or some colonel commander of a unit, or in, in my opinion, most effectively, the senior enlisted leaders out there um, who can step up and say, hey, this is going on in my life. I step forward and ask for help. You should too, because look at me now, I'm doing great. Um, it seems like such a simple thing, like who, who would care about that? Um, but, but I really think that that's, that's been a, um, a game changer over the past years is having more, uh, senior leaders step up and publicly s admit things like, Hey, I was letting, um, um, this, my, I was letting my job or letting my duties or letting my stressors affect my personal life. And I don't think there's too many people out there who would in, in the right mind say, um, well, I don't care how I treat my family. Like people don't think like that. The problem is trying to break that cycle and say, well, like I, you know, I, I could, there's something I can do about it. And I, I think that's part of the issue is um, this kind of mystique, like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. That's just how I am. Or um, what many people will say is, well, that's comes with the job. That's just part of the job. I actually hear this in the law enforcement community, that same line is like, well, I'm a cop and that's part of the job. Um, well, I don't, I don't know is that it, it is. I, I, <laughs> I think that, I think that, um, you know, if, if your, uh, your home life and preserving your family life and, um, being, being a good person, um, does not have to be sacrificed. Now I'm not like making, you know, rainbows and butterflies here. But, but I do think that the first step is just like saying that, okay, I, I got some work I could do here. And I actually think there's something that could be helpful. Um, if you don't think there's anything that could be helpful, or you know that, you know, someone next door raised their hand for help, you're one of your teammates, next thing you know, whoosh, off the force or something else, you better bet you're not going to step forward and ask for help. So I think that the, the barriers to care have to be broken down so that people are not, you know, asking for help should not be perceived as, as a punishment in any way. And when I say asking for help, I'm saying that kind of generically, I mean, like, you know, seeing a, seeing a mental health provider or seeing a chaplain or seeing somebody who, who you can just talk to, to, to get after some um, stressors with just some basic 
um, talk therapy for lack of a better term. Um, I think if, if there, if you fear that there's repercussions to that, um, or you're going to be, you know, taken off, off your team or had to have to take a knee, then I don't care how bad it gets. I don't think there's people will do that. I know that people are that committed. Um, my teammates were for, for three years in the military that committed to that. I don't doubt that there's many, many people out there in the force that are cops, firefighters, EMS, military that feel the same way. I'm not going to jeopardize my, my role to my teammates by stepping forward to ask some shrink for help or something like that. Um, but I know in the long term, that's the thing that's going to keep things going and it's going to make you a better teammate and a better, you know, better at doing your job. So my final question before we get into the actual treatment, and it's something that's always just blown my mind when I think about it, you get these guys that, that were Delta or special forces or, or SWAT guys or narcotics undercovers, and they face the dragon hundreds of times and, and they've done all of these almost superhuman things throughout their careers and they leave and they turn to suicide. And, and it's always been crazy to me when I think about it, that they faced all this evil, all these demons and put them all down. And when they get back and they're in quiet time or they're with themselves, it just overcomes them. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's the big focus of all this because it is destroying the military, law enforcement, first responders. It's eating it from the inside out. Yeah. Yeah, boy, that's a complex topic. And and I, uh, yeah, I, I have shaken my head at this too. I, I can say um, that... There are, there are some people who will say things like, I can't absolutely understand how anybody could ever possibly kill themselves and do that to their families. You'll hear people say that. I understand. And I think that there are um, people who will hit a point of, of hopelessness or despair and um, pain, literally pain, um, either emotional or physical, um, that they can't find a, or feel that there's a way out and that that seems to be the only answer. So, so I think it's important to just say that up front and, and recognize that it's kind of morbid as that sounds. Um, I think that um, a lot of people have placed emphasis recently on transitioning from the military as an important um, time period for this, but it's not the whole answer, but it's worth, it's worth talking about because this phenomenon exists um, across many, many professions, um, the, the transition from the military. So I just went through it, right. I'm, I'm one year out from retirement. I was in from the age of 17 and out at the age of 54. Um, I haven't known anything but the military since I was in high school. And I, um, the, the change in identity is no joke. So I think, you know, back to your point in terms of, of the, um, the elite or most accomplished or whatever terminology you want to use. If you're going to go from a point where you have been um, the best of the best, whatever that is, whatever that is that you've done and that you have um, invested your life, your whole career to something and really in, in, in your profession, which is different than a job, right? I'm not saying your job. I'm saying your profession. This is something you're calling um, that you, 
is part of your identity. And when you go to hang up your uniform, um, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. It's not, you know, I, and I remember looking on LinkedIn and seeing people post things for the couple of years before I retired and thinking, yeah, that's going to be kind of a doozy, but I'm sure I'll be fine. You know, I got, I got, I got faith. I got, I got strong friends and stuff like that. Um, but no one is immune to that. And, and even people that I've known well that I've served with that, that I thought would be, um, smooth sailing or cruise through the transition period had bumps in the road and it's tricky. It's just something that, um, it's hard to, it's hard to put into words, but I, I don't think it's one of these things that we just throw up our hands and say, Oh, well, transition's hard. We can't do anything about it. Um, I do think that there's, um, some pretty important efforts that I, that I saw in my last unit at Bragg that I thought was interesting that people were really trying to lean forward on that and help people appreciate that their, their worth and their value was not necessarily tied to their duty position or what they did. And I think there's so many people in the military that have so much to offer. Um, there's so many community servants that are in law enforcement and firefighters that are, that are retiring, that have so much to be proud of and so much to offer still that, um, you, that there's got to at some point be a, a way to uncouple your value and your worth and from your, um, your personality of that profession. Um, and I think that like, I don't know how to do that. Right. I'm just saying this is kind of a, a simple, um, uh, summary of what I think would be a, a critical step. Um, there are plenty of people that work in the area of suicide prevention specifically that look at um, what can we do in the transition time period to try to get after just that. Um, and I want to mention that 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 goes across professions. Um, the other place that you see this is in athletes, which is interesting, right? Because we're, you know, we're really talking about our community here as what I, I consider us kind of the same community of military and and first responders. Um, but I, I happen to work with high level athletes and have for quite some time. Um, and there is a very similar phenomenon in athletes as they retire for someone who's been singularly focused um, and their identity wholly tied to that. Now, um, I'm not, um, you know, I'm drawing the parallel there just specifically about the identities and the impact of mental health after retiring from sport, whether that's an Olympic athlete or whatever. Um, but, but you see the same phenomenon play out. So I think that it's, it's worth saying it is that the identity in the transition period is really a, a it's a fragile thing. Um, and um, somewhere upstream to get after um, the fact that your identity as a as a community servant, as a law enforcement officer, or as a soldier, or as an airman, um, is not related specifically to your uniform or your stripes or your badges or your awards, um, but it's more to who you are as a as a servant, as someone who serves others. And there's um, tons of ways to do that, um, you know, after separation or after transition. Unfortunately. Some of them just aren't as cool. That's <laughs> it's just it's it's really that simple. There are there are times where many people are going to take off their uniform and they're going to look at it one last time and they're going to go, "I was pretty damn cool and I did some pretty cool things." And you know what? Probably not going to do them again. I'm going to do some other things, but I may not ever be that cool again. Um, that kind of stinks, you know. Like that's part of getting old, I guess. But it doesn't mean that you're worthless and it doesn't mean that you have no value and it doesn't mean that you're a has been or anything like that. Um, 
but I, I, I do agree with you that I think it's, um, it's devastating that this has been a known problem for so long and it doesn't seem like anyone's been able to make any head ground on it. It's just still there. Well, I think one of the things that you point out, I've seen you talk, uh, and say the, the documentary, the weight of gold, um, yeah. is a, is a great one to watch about seeing that transition from that elite elite to just being a normal guy or girl walking around. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't seen that before, I mean, I don't have any, I don't know. It's not, it's an HBO special the way to gold. And I've, I've been lucky enough to work with Michael Phelps for years. And I, I, you know, um, regardless of his athletic accomplishments, um, his leadership in the area of mental health has been, um, has been fantastic. And, you know, I think really, you know, go, going back to the point of leaders um, sharing their stories, having an impact on others. And I think there's, um, you know, a lot to be said for people that are in a spotlight to be able to share their stories or share their, you know, show their weaknesses or show their struggles um, to make an impact on others. And I think the impact on others from that particular special has been, been pretty remarkable. Well, like with every story that has conflict, there's a resolution and kind of rising up and a, a good ending to every great story. So I want to show a video real quick. It's about 90 seconds of the actual treatment. And then I want to get into it with you. And I took this directly from your website, um, but we'll take a look at it. And then let's get into this, how you're helping people tremendously, because I've heard uh, people talk about this that have gotten in. It's unbelievable how they talk about it. So let's take a look real quick. The U.S. Army is researching an anesthetic injection that could be key in alleviating symptoms of PTSD, a disorder that impacts hundreds of thousands of veterans. Early clinical experience with the shots, known as stellate ganglion blocks, have produced promising results, with troops experiencing near-immediate relief of anxiety, hypervigilance, and other symptoms, according to military researchers. In the procedure, doctors inject a local anesthetic into the right side of the neck, guiding the needle to the area around the stellate ganglion, a group of nerves that is part of a bridge between the brain and the body called the cervical sympathetic chain. This chain is part of the nervous system that prepares the body for perceived dangers and regulates the fight-or-flight response. Sometimes it can become dysfunctional or activated inappropriately. The SGB injection temporarily blocks signals between the brain and the body. The precise mechanism for how this assists with PTSD symptoms is not fully understood, but the SGB seems to reset the sympathetic nervous system. Doctors who have administered the injections say they firmly believe it works, but the wider military is waiting for the results from a controlled trial currently underway before they endorse the treatment. The drug is marketed under the brand name Neropin and costs less than $2 a dose. Most patients require just one injection, but doctors say some return for a second shot. The shot is not touted as a cure, but researchers hope it can be used to erase symptoms so that therapy and pharmaceuticals can achieve long-term improvements. So I want to start off with a couple things. One, getting a needle in my neck is, I'm, I'm really not looking forward to that, so I really hope you can explain that one away. But in all the research that I did for this, this has been talked about for like a hundred years. And it was, it was mentioned a couple different times in history, uh, 1954, 
and then a hundred years ago, they were making, you know, uh, I watched some of your presentations where the drawings were showing it. So let's get into this and, and why more people don't know about this. Yeah. Well, I, um, I will do my best. This is my, uh, this is my passion. This is my, my life's work is, um, is Stelly Ganglion Block. And, and I'll do my best to not, um, talk you to death on this. Um, the reason I say that is, um, it, it is by far the most rewarding thing I've done in, in medicine in my life, um, because of the impact it's had on so many people and so many of my, my, my teammates, my, my friends, my colleagues, um, their families and many people who serve, who are in, you know, public service type jobs. Um, um, not to mention the number of people that are affected by trauma. So just in terms of a big number of people that can potentially be helped, this is just a, a huge deal. I mentioned the, the 10 million Americans with um, PTSD. A, an interesting piece about that, that that is worth talking about on this first is the fact that of the, of the 10 million in America, about 2 million are combat vets. You, so that surprised some people. Um, the rest have to do with trauma from other other reasons, whether it's childhood, domestic assault, um, so sexual assault or abuse, um, first responder trauma. There's a number of others. So that, that really a minority of that is from combat trauma. And in terms of demographics wise, there's about two to one women to men with PTSD in America. Um, so anyway, to me, it's a this is a big deal because it's a big deal. And the Stella Ganglion block to me has just been a game changer. Um, it has not it's not a miracle cure, but it, it damn near um, is a game changer for so many people that it just turns things around. So uh, when I retired last year, I, I joined my partner, a doctor named Sean Mulvaney, also a, a military veteran of 31 years. Uh, former SEAL turned Army doctor, and he and I both served in the soft community for years. And um, Dr. Mulvaney is the one who introduced me to Stella Ganglion Block back in 2010, 2011. And now we work together in Annapolis, Maryland, um, really to raise awareness and bring bring this to a wider, wider group. Um, the, the video does a pretty good job of explaining everything. I think it's nice. It gives a nice graphic and shows what it is. To, to answer your first question, though, DJ, um, almost everyone who I do a block on, and I do them pretty much every day, um, um, says it doesn't hurt. And they're wide awake when I do it. I use a tiny little needle like a flu shot. Um, and most people describe it feels weird, but it's not painful. So just right up front, because a lot of people say the same thing. They look at that or they hear about a needle in the neck that sounds weird and painful. And I don't want anything to do with that. But just right up front to tell you, it's it's unusual for anyone to say that it hurts. And they feel a little discomfort, a little weird, maybe a little sore the next day. But it's not a painful procedure in any way. And the time it takes to do is like 10 minutes. It's, it's one of the um, really most straightforward things that we perform under ultrasound guidance where I'm watching my needle the whole time. So, it, you know, it's difficult to do it any more safe than that. You mentioned that the block's been around. So uh, the Stella Ganglion block has been around for 100 years. Um, this is not something new. This is, you, you'd think it was something that just got invented by the number of people who are aware that this is a valuable tool, but it's just from lack of awareness or, or a little bit of disbelief that this could be so helpful. 
Um, the block used to be done, so it's on the neck um, for the video viewers. You can see it's on the side of the neck, right about the level of Adam's apple. And it's just a, a small injection of local anesthetic to the nerve that runs along the side of the neck called the cervical sympathetic chain. And that's what controls the body's fight or flight. Um, like I said, the procedure takes about 10 minutes. Um, the results are immediate. So that's kind of one of the important things to, to mention about this. There are people who have had uh, mental health conditions that maybe have been recommended on medications and medications um, play a great role in that. Um, but a lot of times it takes several weeks to see if you're feeling a, a, an impact. And um, or there may be other therapies that you're kind of wondering whether or not you feel the effect. Uh, the cell ganglion block, you know, right away, like literally within minutes, what the effect is going to be. So there's a real appeal to some people of, of, okay, I can do a procedure that's not painful, takes 10 minutes, is safe, and I'm going to know right away whether it works. Like, I, I don't want to oversell it, but that's a pretty appealing thing, particularly if you're um, not willing to just go talk to a therapist or to take a medication every day. It, it may be the kind of thing that addresses those concerns or anxieties right up front to actually allow you to step forward and ask um, ask for an appointment to go talk to a therapist. And, and that's been my experience over the years is there are many people who really don't want to talk to a therapist or go to therapy. I mean, that sounds weird or uncomfortable or whatever word you want to use for that, um, but would gladly um, take a needle in the neck to feel better. And then once they feel better, sometimes that's the opportunity to go, okay, well, I'm going to dig into this stuff a little bit better and actually get, get right. Um, so the, the first thing I'd say about the block is that I, I don't, um, and the video said this as well, but I don't think that this is, should be touted as a standalone cure or anything like that. And you may hear some doctors talk about that. Or if you read something online, someone will say something about how stellar gang block can cure PTSD. Um, to be fair, there are people that we've treated and now it's been 10 years between Dr. Mulvaney and I, several thousand patients. So there have been people who were treated once and then did really well for the past 10 years. So um, there, there's that. I would not say that's the majority. I think that's you know a, a smaller minority of people that we would call one and done, um, but it's pretty cool when it does happen. Um, I, go ahead, DJ. I, I wanted to ask you about the numbers real quick while you're talking about this, because you're talking about repeat, but I read that the, the numbers are 50% reduction in 80% of your patients of post-traumatic stress, of the, of the feelings of it, of the anxiety of it, and that 95% of the patients that uh, have taken it would recommend other people to use it. Those numbers are astronomical, especially in the medical setting. Yeah, I, so that's that's a good point. Um, and I'll, the, the one point to clarify there that, um, so you're right. It's about a 50% drop in symptoms, which is, which is pretty amazing. If you have to actually look at a symptom score sheet, but we'll have people that fill out what's called post-traumatic stress disorder checklist five. Um, and the, the scores can be something like 75. And then after a single stellar ganglion block can drop that down to like 15. Um, that's crazy. That's probably like lower than mine, but, um, it's, it's a, it's a really remarkable result. The 85%, 80 or 85% success rate has held up to be true over years of studying this. And, 
And most of the publications in the literature were written by Dr. Mulvaney and myself and some of our colleagues. Um, but a lot of them came out of the military community, specifically within SOF, um, where we really have been doing blocks for, for over 10 years now. Um, and not just doing them, but studying them, publishing our results in peer-reviewed journals so that we can actually you know, advance the medicine here. Um, but the, the, um, what I started to say was that that was with a right side block. We've kind of advanced the, the science a little bit now. So um, a little bit through um, a bit of an accident discovered that a left sided block can be utilized in that other, the missing 15% uh, or so that don't respond really well on a right sided block. So there's probably people that are listening to this, or there may be people listening to this who, who know someone that said, oh, I had a stellar block you know, a few years ago, didn't do much or wore off really quick. That's true um, that there is a percentage of people that have, you know, uh, still an okay response, meaning they dropped their symptom scores by 10 points, um, but not an awesome response. Very few people get worse. So there's not a whole lot of things in medicine like that, like almost in the single digits of per thousand, like that's just unusual for anybody to get worse. Um, so most people get either a little bit better or a lot better. The people that get a little bit better, what we had have started to do over the past few years then is to offer an opposite side block. So uh, we always start on the right-hand side for, you know, some sort of variety of reasons that have to do with the anatomical storage of the memories. But then some people will respond really well to a left-sided block. Um, so what, what we learn now is for those who are what we'll call non-responders on the right side, are the uh, study that we published last year showed that if you take those folks and then do a left-sided block on them, 90% of them have a robust response. So that we, there's now at least an answer to why we couldn't figure out about this other 15% or so that didn't have a great response. Um, and now we think left left side block is the answer for them. It doesn't have anything to do with like right-handed or left-handed. It's not even, we can't predict it yet. I think someday we'll be able to figure out the why. Um, until then, you know, there's a little bit of a, of a trial and error that if you don't respond well to a right-sided block, we invite you back and we'll repeat one on the left-hand side. Um, as far as the 95% number that you use there, just to clarify that, um, um, the, the study that we did was actually asking psychologists. So psychologists in the military and civilian community in the U.S. and Europe, we surveyed them and said, hey, all you guys that have experience taking care of patients with stellar ganglion block, um, we asked them a bunch of questions. But one of them was, um, would you recommend this to one of your psychology colleagues to add on top of your your um, PTSD treatment, and 95% of them said yes. Um, and then that, that research article was pretty interesting because they actually found that there was no harmful or negative effects of a stellate ganglion block as compared to all the other treatments for PTSD, which did have, you know, so some medications sometimes have a negative effect, sometimes other exposure therapies can have a negative effect, but none of them, of anybody that reported, found any negative effects from adding stellate ganglion block to their therapy. So I thought that was landmark. I thought that was a really big deal and that more psychologists would perk up and take notice and say, hey, this is something that I can use that, that really seems like it'll really help my, my patients, my clients get better. Well, I, I think you're almost selling that study a little short, too, because not only were there no negative side effects, but 
there were some that were actually harmful uh, to the patients that were going through it. And it showed up on a couple of different of the, of the study that it yeah. was actually harmful towards the patient. Another yeah. thing that I would like you to kind of explain is the study that was done. I think it was done by you and your, your partner uh, where there was two different kinds of injections. There was almost like a, um, a false injection yeah. and then the injection yeah. and the, the, the difference in the two, because I thought that was pretty amazing too, how that worked out that it almost exponentially reinforced what you were already saying. Yeah. So, oh, the video that you just played, um, that was actually done right before the, the multi-center trial was complete. So they say something at the end there that's like, uh, you know, the study's underway and the military will um, wait and see what happens or something to that effect. Well, that study was published in JAMA Psychiatry in 2019. Um, and that's a study that uh, my partner, Dr. Mulvaney and I are on, as well as many other people, um, that have worked on this project over the years was done between the hospital in Germany and Longstuhl uh, Tripler, which is in Hawaii and the hospital at Fort Bragg, Womack. So uh, three army hospitals over several years. Um, and what that showed is we actually did a sham injection, which was, that's the term used, the medical term used for fake injection. Or, they should or probably look for a different name. Yeah, I know. I think sham, <laughs> sham sounds kind of, Sound of hokey, but um, it was actually a, an injection into the superficial muscles of the neck, but not into the deep muscle where the cervical sympathetic trunk lies. And what the results were was that the stellate ganglion block that was done appropriately was twice as effective as that sham injection. So the, the reason to do that then, of course, is to try to tease out all the possible biases and things like that. Um, the, the sad part of that story is that that study, while we thought was a resounding success and a really obvious thing um, it was still not enough to convince a lot of people to adopt this whole wholesale. Um, you know, and specifically within the VA, there are a lot of people fighting hard to have the VA offer stellar ganglion block across the board. Um, the VA has not, um, has neither endorsed nor discredited it. And they basically leave it up to local hospitals whether or not to offer it. So there's about 20 or so, of the VA hospitals across the states that may offer it. Um, and hopefully that'll change in the future. That's part of what we do at, at our Institute is to try to advocate for that as well. Um, Don't you think that goes back to what we talked about earlier though, and the, the critique of military and maybe VA healthcare and taking care of the soldier. Do you think that, I mean, with everything that's been proven about this, don't you think that adds to that critique? Yeah, I think that's, I think it's fair to say it like that, DJ. I do think, so it's it's interesting, right? Because I'm biased. This is something that I believe in with my soul. Like, I, I think that this is, could help millions and millions of people if the VA would offer it, if the DOD go, would go widespread, if insurances would cover it. So for all the sexual assault survivors that are out there, we could offer this widespread. So I'm, I'm super biased on this. I also happen to be a physician who's, you know, trained in, um, evidence-based medicine and trying to weigh risks and benefits and all. So I get frustrated when um, I see that a, a giant machine uh, or a giant uh, organization turns slowly to, you know, accommodate what, what I think is a really obvious innovative technique um, with very little risk that could offer a tremendous amount of hope for people. But I also understand it. So I don't, you know, I don't, I can say that at the same time while not, you know, trying to poke them in the eye, but 
frankly, I'm getting a little impatient at this point. So we are actually undergoing another randomized control trial right now. So if any, if anybody is out there um, interested, we are doing another Stelly ganglion block trial that will hopefully be the the straw to break the camel's back or push you know push the evidence over the edge here. We teamed up with Ohio State um, to conduct a, a a study at our place in Annapolis with a telehealth option at Ohio State that veterans can sign up for. Um, now, as that's going on, we hope to publish our results sometime in the next couple. I don't know. It usually takes a couple of years to get all that out, but that that hopefully will be you know the evidence required for us to really push this boulder over the top of the hill that we've been uh, pushing up now for about ten years. Can we talk about? A little about central autonomic dysfunction. Yeah, it's a great um, it, it's a great point. I, I like to I I think it's helpful. I, I look at some of the sh- the symptoms of post traumatic stress as um, you know if I can say it like that they're they're almost neurologic, not psychiatric. Um, and this is I think it's important because sometimes people look at. Um, things like, you know, if it's something that's psychiatric or psychology that I'm a broken toy, there's something wrong with my brain, it's not working right. Um, well, we, we have a, a whole system of nerves that connects our brain to our body. They happen to all run through the neck, right? Um, but the, the body was designed a certain way. We have certain um, instincts that allow us to survive. Uh, sometimes they just get a little dysfunctional, but that doesn't mean that you're um, broken or that there's something wrong in your head or something like that. Um, so, so central autonomic dysfunction is the idea that our brain is finely tuned where there's a, um, kind of a baseline, um, autonomic function that runs in the background that allows our body to just, um, do what it has to do. Um, sweat when we get hot, our hair stands up when we get cold, our heartbeat, all these things are regulated as kind of that run in the background of our autonomic nervous system. And then all there are other systems that run in the foreground that are our conscious thoughts and our decision making and things like that. Um, there can be dysfunction or, or uh, upsetting that balance where um, some of the, um, the central cognitive processes become disrupted and um, that can account for some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to say this in a, a way that's not confusing, but I, but I might be making it worse. Um, what, ha- what can happen <laughs> is the normal balance that we have between the two parts of the autonomic nervous system, which is kind of like an accelerator and a brake, right? It's like the fight or flight system and then the rest and digest system. So you're, you're in a fine balance. And most of the time your body works really well it gets revved up when it needs to. You're driving down the road and the guy in front of you slams on his brakes while you're changing the radio station. You look up, your whole body locks up, you're sweating, your heart races. That's a normal response, fight or flight response. That's your sympathetic nervous system. Um, and then once you catch your breath and you you know you pick your happy meal up off the back of the floor, um, your heart rate goes down, you have a normal response. Everything's fine. For some people, that exposure to fight or flight over time ratchets up the sympathetic nervous system so that now becomes overpowers the parasympathetic or the other, the rest and digest system. Um, For some people, it's not necessarily like it's flipped on and it's just cranked all the time. For some, it just may be elevated. 
Um, and it's the kind of thing that we can actually address. And that's what the stellate ganglion block does. It addresses the abnormal elevation of the sympathetic nervous tone by blocking the nerve in the neck and putting it to sleep for eight hours. And when it wakes up again after eight hours, it wakes up in a less excited state. And it sounds like a very simple thing to say, but most patients will use terminology like, I feel like I got rebooted or somebody reset me, or I have a feeling immediately after, like there was a, a release or, or, or a, a letdown of um, stress or tension. Um, people will describe feeling relaxed or sleepy. None of those things are properties of the medicine that we inject ropivacaine. Ropivacaine just blocks the nerve. So any of the feelings that people feel afterwards are not a result of the medication that we give you. It's a result of the signal that we take away. So it's that signal that's going brain to body, body to brain, body to brain, back and forth that's built this circuit. Um, and it feeds back on itself. So um, all of us know this too. This is not like some fancy science. We know that if we tighten up our muscles in our body, our brain gets ready to fight. And then it tells our body to tighten up again. Um, and that can become a circuit that just gets worn into our, our neurologic nervous system over the years. So that it becomes very difficult to reset all the way down to baseline so that you might just be on edge all the time. You can't relax. You go to the mall and you're constantly looking over your shoulder or startle reflex, or you're just irritable at stuff that you know you shouldn't be irritable at. These are normal reactions to having a sympathetic nervous system that's been dysfunctional or, or regulated up higher than it should be. And the thing with the block is it can help fix that. It helps fix it by resetting it and re rebooting it back to its normal baseline. So before we get into like potential risks, and by the way, I looked at potential risks. They don't seem really that uh, big. There, there's a couple in there that are, um, I think would frighten people, but, and I want to talk about those specifically, but I want to start with this question with all of that. How do you sell the point to people that just can't seem to wrap their brain around that reset? I think when you say that a lot of people would go great, that sounds exactly like what I need, but I think it would also set a lot of people maybe on edge that they're you're resetting something and they're worried that something may be taken away from them. Is that a good way to say it? That's a perfect way to say it because it's it hits home exactly in this community that we're talking about. So if, if, if and, and this is what we did to actually you know alleviate that concern was we'll, we'll study that early on um, in the special operations community, which was you know the the question came up really early from a you know a group of operators. Hey doc, tell me again what you're doing. So you're going to reset my fight or flight system, the thing that I've been honing for 20 years so that I can stay alive in combat. Tell me why you're going to do that again, right? So so I understand the question um, perfectly um, that there would be people really concerned about anyone messing with my fight or flight system. Um, what I can tell you is we studied that and not only was there um, no negative effect on things like um, reaction time, um, dynamic visual tracking, the kind of things that you would need to um, survive in combat or um, in a gunfight. Um, some people actually got better. Um, we never went back and repeated that study or we haven't yet gone back to do that, but we have heard anecdotally about this um, clarity of thought that can come with stellar ganglion block, which is essentially like closing down all the open windows that you have that are just pinging your brain all over the place. Um, 
and allowing you to think more clearly and allowing things like concentration and sleep to be affected so well. Um, so, so I think it's a fair question that people would say, hang on a second. I don't, I don't want to, um, reset something that I've been working to, um, to hone. Um, but, but I can reassure you that that's, that's not what happens. Also, the nervous just goes to sleep and wakes up again after a few hours. Um, so it's not something like, which has been done, um, years ago where people tried actually clipping it. Like, let's see what happens if you clip that or radio frequency ablate it. Um, that's not what we're doing. And what, what may help people, um, is what I, what I say is what we, what has been used in pain medicine for quite some time is sometimes people have a condition where their nerves are on fire or just hyper, um, um, sensitive, something called chronic regional pain syndrome, where people can get phantom limb pain that are amputees where a nerve gets really enraged. Um, and we can use a similar process in medicine to block the nerve with a simple numbing medication allow it to go to sleep. And when it wakes back up again, it wakes up in a less excited state. So that's actually what stellate ganglion block is used for in hospitals every day across the United States is for a pain procedure to treat neuropathic pain like that. But the point is the nerve wakes up and works fine. It's not like the nerve wakes up and it's broken or it somehow doesn't work as well. It's just reset to its normal state. Um, and what Anecdotally, what my patients report to me, and I keep in touch with literally hundreds of my former patients, is they feel like themselves again, not like some new version of themselves that cries at movies or something weird like that. It's actually like, well, I feel like there's, I'm at okay, There's nothing wrong with crying at a movie. Let's just put that out there right, right. now. Maybe Rudy. But um, anyway, I'm just saying people have voice concerns about maybe having personality changes. I've had people concerned about, well, I don't, you know, I don't want my personality to change. I, I would say almost to the one of them, the people that I keep in touch with feel like, um, you know, they, they restored their previous real personality. And I think the appeal is they know that that's not coming from a pill or some other thing that some doctor gave them, you know, back again to that point when I come, when I do a block on anybody, I always say, I'm not giving you anything today. I'm taking something away. So anything that you feel after this is not the result of ropivacaine. Ropivacaine doesn't make you calm. It doesn't make you happy or sleepy or any of those other things. It's just going to block the circuit that you have developed that's running between your brain and your body. And your your brain has been telling your body all these negative signals. And we're going to break that, take it away. I've heard people say that they hadn't felt like that in 20, 22 years. I can't remember what the, the guy that was being interviewed, he said within like 30 seconds, he felt better and said he hadn't felt like that in like 22 years, something like that. It was a crazy number. Um, let's talk about potential risk because, of course, we have to say that to people because I really want you to, to dispel maybe myths that people will make up in their heads. So you got pain, bleeding, vasovagal response um the the one that that a little bit concerned me was the seizure so let's yeah. talk about that and and explain you know the steps that are taken to to kind of relieve that pressure from them of worrying about that yeah that's perfect that's actually the thing that uh, that concerns me um that's made me really modify how i perform the procedure so a um, couple thoughts on that the, the safety profile for cell ganglion blocks is extremely safe. And, and like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, if anybody missed it, I think 
or halfway through that the procedure is done blind, meaning no imaging, got no ultrasound, no fluoroscopy. It was literally stick your finger in deep into someone's neck and touch a bone and then follow your finger down with a needle and inject it without looking at anything. Um, and that was done safely for 80 years. Um, so that's got to make you feel pretty good up front. But what we do now is um, I do everything under ultrasound guidance, like live real time. So I'm literally watching my needle go to the target and traverse anything that's in the way. Um, there are some doctors who still perform this under fluoroscopy, um, which I, I, um, I would not do. There are doctors doing that. So there, there may be someone that listens to this now and takes offense at that, but um, pretty much every doctor I know who's been trained to perform stellar ganglion block, both under fluoroscopy, which is live x-ray, big machine, like a C-arm. Um, anybody that's been trained to use that technique and ultrasound has all changed over to ultrasound now. So, um, and I think it, it's for safety reasons. So that's why I'm saying that. Um, so under ultrasound, you can see blood vessels really well. Under fluoroscopy, you cannot. So what it allows us to do is to the, re, the risk of seizure comes if you were to inject the whole syringe of ropivacaine into a blood vessel that goes to the brain, um, that could cause a seizure. Um, you could do it if you're, one, inexperienced, um, two, not paying any attention at all, or or three, um, careless at how you inject or potentially inject in a vessel if you're using fluoroscopy. Um, the way that that does not happen, although you know I still take great care not to make that happen, is I map out all the blood vessels using Doppler ultrasound ahead of time. And there are um, um, anatomic variations. So not everybody read the anatomy book. Sometimes people have an artery going in the wrong spot. So you have to look at them really carefully. Um, once I've done that, then I just inject very slowly once I've reached the target, just a little milliliter at a time. And patients are wide awake laying there. They're not in pain at all. And I just say, how you doing? And I inject very, very slowly and just ask them how they're doing. And they say, fine. And until I inject the seven milliliters of ropivacaine, and then I take out the needle. Um, by doing that, I mitigate that risk of seizure to practically nothing. Um, and I tell everybody that I'm going to do that ahead of time too. So they're not, they're not worried about that. Another interesting thing that, that popped up to me, let's talk about Horner syndrome. And I really want you to explain this one because this seems in everything that I read about, uh, it happens every single time you do this. That's how you find out that it works. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's true. So there, there will be some doctors that will dispute whether or not a stellate ganglion block can still be effective if you don't get a Horner syndrome. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I did not get a Horner syndrome with a, an effective stellate ganglion block. So I, I, I'm not sure about that. So I'm going to, I'm just going to say, agree with you that yes, um, what a Horner syndrome is, and I'll describe that is actually, it's confirmation that the cervical sympathetic trunk has been blocked. So it's telling you that the fight or flight system has been turned off. And what Horner syndrome is, is a temporary uh, change in the face um, that happens after a stellate ganglion block and lasts about six to eight hours of the duration of the ropivacaine. And then your face goes back to normal. But for that period of time, it looks asymmetric. The side that you get the block on, your eye will droop, so your lid droops. Your, the white of your eye will become injected or, or bloodshot and your pupil gets smaller than the opposite side. 
On top of that, your, your face feels a little warm or full, and you can get a little sinus pressure from the blood vessels inside the sinuses that dilate. Occasionally, people will get a little headache with that or not be able to breathe through this, that side of their nose. And then, um, although we don't measure it anymore, your whole um, side of your face and your arm are actually um, increasing temperature by about a degree compared to your other side. Um, why does this happen? It's the body's natural response. It's actually what happens if your cervical um, sympathetic system is, is shut off. And what you get is a dilation of the blood vessels. That's kind of a normal response. And it confirms that, um, that the block was done correctly. It usually lasts about six to eight hours, and then people go right back to normal. So everything that we've talked about tonight um, – we talked about the main things that, that PTSD and you said uh, symptoms that, that you saw in yourself when you'd come home to the family, the main ones that are affected by this injection are irritability, angry outbursts, difficulty concentrating, and then trouble falling or staying asleep. They, they cover down on those things. We've talked about that. They, you know, it could be one injection to two injections. What can people kind of in wrapping this entire thing up, what can they take from this in looking into it a little further? Yeah. Well, we, when, um, when Dr. Mulvaney and I stood up the Stellate Institute a year ago, we, we decided we wanted to build our website. So it'd be, um, informative, educational. So, uh, you know, I would, I would refer you to, um, the Stellate Institute, uh, com, which is our, our website on it. We hung, you know, a whole bunch of frequently asked questions. Um, there's testimonials, the 60 minutes special, other media. And then we also hung all the um, literature that we published in the peer reviewed medical journals. So for people who really want, like, I don't, don't just give me testimonials. I want to know the science behind that. All those are hung on there too, that are, um, you know, to include our level one study that was published in JAMA Psych is on there. So I think it, the, the, the short answer is I would refer you to our, our website. We put a lot of time into trying to um, answer people's questions ahead of time. Having said all that, I think if you, um, if you read through all, all that, if you read through the website and see that, okay, this seems like something that, that would, um, that would potentially help me. You, you may ask others, you may ask other people. There are, there are plenty of people in the community who have benefited from Stella Ganglion Block would be more than happy to share their testimonials with you. Um, I would not be surprised if you are already seeing a therapist or um, a psychiatrist, if you ask them what they think, if they are not familiar with it. Um, this blows me away still. I, I, I scratched my head when I moved up here to DC last year and I've reached out to many um, behavioral health uh, providers in the area who not only weren't that familiar with Stella Ganglion Block, but actually never even heard of it. And there's about 40 articles published in the peer-reviewed medical literature on it. We've treated thousands of people. There's 10 million people with PTSD in the U.S., and it's effective in 85% of people to drop their symptoms by 50%. And there are people that are trauma-trained psychologists that have never even heard about it. So that's a problem. Like I, and I think, you know, I think that there's, that's a multifactorial problem. There are some barriers to getting the word out. Um, but don't be surprised. My point in saying that was don't, don't be surprised if you ask, um, you know, your friendly neighborhood psychologist, what they think about it. And they give you an answer, something like, 
well, I never heard of it, so must not be must not work, or I didn't learn about that in school, so must not must not be good, or the jury's out, or something like that. I would just say do your own homework, and you know, like many people do, take matters into their own hand and do their own reading and and look at the evidence yourself. Um, we are happy to see uh, anybody at the Stellar Institute in Annapolis, and in particular, uh, both Doc Mulvaney and I. Um, um, we are, you know, considered by many as, you know, the most experienced people in the world that do this. We have more publications than anybody else and have performed more than anybody else. But we, we try to make this as affordable as possible, both to our community, um, military and first responders and otherwise. Um, it's still a barrier to care because insurance doesn't cover it for some or it may be, you know, difficult to travel to, to the Washington, D.C. area. But we'll make every effort if anyone is in crisis um, and needs to see us, like we'll get you in the next day. Like we'll figure it out whether we come in early, stay late, work at lunch, whatever. We don't care. And we've had many people who do that. They'll call and just say, hey, I'm in a bad spot right now. Um, can you get me in? And yeah, we will. We'll get you in. Um, the other thing is we have people um, who will sponsor our patients that will pay for the cost. Um, and if you call the front desk when you're scheduling an appointment, and you ask that they're primarily folks that will um, support veterans. Um, what we have not seen yet that I would love to see is a, as a first responder organizations step up to the plate and, and match what a lot of the veteran service organizations have done and said, hey, I'll, I'll sponsor some some cops or I'll sponsor some firefighters to come get an SGB um, and we'll pay for it through some benevolent funding so that the guys don't have to pay out of pocket for that. Um, I haven't seen that happen yet. We've, we've talked to some folks, but I think that's really another hopeful step forward here because there's so many folks that could benefit. Well, doc, I think we've covered a lot of ground tonight. I, I am amazed by this uh, ever since we've been talking and, and doing the research on it and watching the videos on it. There's, there's a ton out there and especially from you. And what's great about your website, drjameslins.com is you have a 90 second version, a 20 minute version and a 90 minute version to explain. Now I've watched all three. So I think well, people can go there and just depend on what amount of time they want to spend in learning about it. Uh, it's, it's very medical driven, but I think that it can put some things to rest for them if they're worried about the injection or if they just want to learn more about it. Other than that, and you talked about the Stellar Institute, uh, com. is there anywhere else that people can find you or look into research on this? Uh, no, I'd actually, I'd actually put those two together. And, and um, there's a link from my website that's up there, the drjameslynch.com, um, like right on the front page. You know, there's some other stuff that I work on on there as well. But really, if you're interested in the Stellar Ganglion Block and everything about it, I think if you go to the stellarinstitute.com website, there, there is, and if there, if you have something that's not on there, tell me and I'll put it on there. Cause that's really the goal is to make that a place where people can go, whether you're a patient, whether you're a family member, where you know someone that, you, that has questions or whether you're a psychologist or psychiatrist, where you can go and get your answers. Um, uh, other than that, I'm happy if uh, I can say our phone number online. I don't think that's up on any graphics. Um, Absolutely. I could give you the phone number if anyone wants to write down uh, for the Stellate Institute. It's 
um, and that's where where I can be reached or our front office staff has all the same knowledge too and is happy to answer questions about whatever logistics and stuff like that is uh, they'd be more than happy to help anybody that calls that number as well uh, and and I think as always I'll put all the stuff up as we you know, put this out to the podcast sites, to YouTube. We'll put all the links in there. So we'll make sure we get the Stelled Institute. Right. Uh, we'll get the phone number, your, your personal, uh, com, drjameslynch.com. Guys, listen, this is an important thing that I think a lot of people still aren't talking about these days for whatever the reason may be a stigma. They're worried that someone will look at them differently, whatever it may be. I, I think that this needs to be at the forefront of people talking about this and possible cures and help for the situations that they're in. If you're feeling any kind of way, please reach out to someone, whether it be a friend, whether it be a family member, whether it be the Institute itself. If you're feeling like you're not right, please get a hold of someone to let them know that you're not so that we can get you treated. Guys, if you want to find some more about him, of course, EstelleInstitute.com, DrJamesLynch.com. If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. You can find me on YouTube where all these are in video form. You'll be able to see the video actually itself. You'll get to see what this man looks like and what you uh, have to look forward to when you go to the Institute itself. Uh, don't forget to check out our partners, tier one outdoors. There are 501 C three. They help soldiers and law enforcement with PTSD, take them on hunts to work through their PTSD. Badass boxes is also a 501 C three. They send care packages to special operations soldiers in the worst parts of the world. And they actually make them up the way the special operations team wants them made up they add the items that they're asking for so please go help these guys out at their websites if you need anything else i'll have all the links posted on this show versus podcast audio and video guys that's going to be the show for tonight please go check these guys out that's dr james lynch i'm dj this has been the show we'll catch you guys on the next one see you later